So everything I do with photography tends to be very, very slow. So if I'm not photographing the inside of these instruments, my other big passion is astrophotography, photographing the stars at night. Um, and that's a similar thing. You can spend hours, days, what nights even, um, trying to get a, a single shot through, you know, lots of, lots of repetition. And yeah, I, I think what I'm really doing there is, is just another variation on playing the cello. Hello everyone, and welcome to The Power of Music Thinking. My name is Christoph Zürn, and this is the podcast for people with a musical heart and a wicked job. We're looking for stories, insights and tools from the big world of music to inspire leaders and followers to listen, tune, play and perform in whatever field you're operating. Today we touch base on the intersection between music and photography, and that in many different ways. My guest today is Charles Brooks, an exceptional photographer and musician that for the last 20 years has been New Zealand's most successful orchestral cellist. Charles held principal positions in Australia, China, Chile and Brazil with concerts worldwide. He also gives us insights in the organization and culture of professional symphony orchestras and shares personal stories about the life of an orchestra musician that played with Lang Lang and for celebrities like Tony Blair and Arnold Schwarzenegger. While his music career took him around the globe at an early age, photography was always there. Charles refined his photographic craft of making musician portraits, astro photographs and landscapes until National Geographic took notice in 2011. And in the pandemic, he prototyped and developed a spectacular new way of photographing the inside of a variety of musical instruments, literally opening up a new space and visual world that give insights in the craft of the most formidable luthiers and instrument makers. And these got picked up worldwide by magazines like The Telegraph, Classic FM, Domus, France Musique, Daily Mail, and just recently, Die Zeit in Germany. So, please find a selection of the photographs on the episode page of the Music Thinking website. They are really marvelous. So now, sit back, relax, and be prepared for a long episode on all things creative. Welcome, Charles. Welcome to The Power of Music Thinking. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Let's start with the first question. What was your first sonic experience or album or performance, live performance that had an impact on you? That's a, it's a tough one. Um, you know, I have been a sort of a musical kid since before I can remember. Um, there are stories my mum has about me being a, a sort of four-year-old in the car on family trips and everybody's singing and I'm, I'm telling them off because they're singing wrong. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I don't particularly remember these. I, I, I started playing violin and piano when I was very little, but, you know, I, I was into it, but I wasn't very good at it. Um, 
And then when I was 11, something kind of quite transformative happened. Um, we were driving somewhere, probably to school, and um, on the radio came the theme to the South Bank show, which is uh, a jazz piece written by Andrew Lloyd Webber for his brother, Julian Lloyd Webber, who is a, a mm. magnificent cellist, um, probably a cellist that should have had a, a maybe a greater career, but he was always in his brother's shadow a little bit. Um, anyway, I, I heard this and, you know, it's this fantastic sort of variations on a theme by Paganini, which, which a lot of other composers have done, Rachmaninoff, all kinds of people. Um, but my 11 year old brain went, wow, if I could play that, I'd be more popular. <laughs> and um, <laughs> immediately, you know, I, I said, mum, look, I want to, I want to change from this scratchy violin thing and go and play the cello. Um, and, you know, I was, I was learning at a sort of Saturday morning music school place where that kind of thing was easy. So I, I switched over and something about the instrument just immediately grabbed me. It, it, it was easy. Um, I was able to, to progress on the cello much faster than I was in, um, you know, on any other instrument. I, I didn't have to be told to practice. I, I loved it. Mm. I would just go and play this thing for hours and hours. And of course, that became my career for, you know, 25 odd years. Um, went to university, played in a, a lot of orchestras, went all around the world until, you know, I was in my, well, just about 40, 41, when I finally sort of retired from cello and went into photography full time, which is where I am. Um, so yeah, that, that piece completely changed me. I never, I never actually played it. And all oh, that time. That's interesting. Um, and, and it's interesting. So it was more, let's say, the popularity or the fame <laughs> that uh, that uh, caught you. And and also, by the way, talking about Paganini, that's more, I, yeah. I would more imagine a violin than a cello. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the original is for violin. It's a magnificent, virtuosic show-off piece. Um, you know, every, every aspiring violinist tries to play that sometimes. Some of them succeed. And look, I mean, it's got to be one of the sort of catchiest tunes ever written. There's a reason that it keeps coming back and back in, in so many various sort of iterations. Um, but, you know, as soon as I, I sort of started the cello and got into it, I, I very quickly started listening to all the other repertoire that was out there. And I got, you know, I found albums of Jacqueline Dupre playing Brahms, which I'd, I'd be blasting through the house stereos at, at ridiculous volumes all hours of the night yeah. um and uh, you know it just led me down this this huge rabbit hole and i think that piece got left behind a little bit um i, I still think maybe one day I'll, i'll go back and play it but i find uh, there's an interesting sort of bookend to this as well so so that was what started me on this journey and then You know, towards the end of my, my cello career, I, I was returning back to, to New Zealand. I'd just finished, you know, three years with the Sao Paulo Symphony, which was a, an amazing experience, both wonderful and, and deeply traumatic in certain ways. Um, and I came back home and a friend of mine realized that I'd, I'd arrived and said, look, there's this, band playing um they've got a gig downtown they need a violinist and a cellist 
Um, it's not a lot of pay. There's no rehearsal, but it's super easy stuff. Can you come and, and play with them? It's just two little songs. And I thought, oh, yeah, fine. Um, yeah, I'll do that. I didn't have anything on. Um, and, of course, I'd, I'd been away for 20 years at this point, and I didn't know the name of any of the bars downtown. Mm. So he sent me this this sort of address and this name that I didn't recognize, and I packed up my cello and went along. And I'm driving along, and I realize there's this long line of about a 1,000 people all wearing these metal T-shirts outside. <laughs> and I'm like, who who is this band? What's this bar? And then I, I realized that... It wasn't a bar, it was the arena. And (laughs) the band was a band called Disturbed, which for anyone that's into sort of, I guess they call themselves metal music, um, they're huge. They're they're sort of top 20 billboard, um, or, you know, number one on the billboard for metal for the last 10 albums over the last sort of 15 years or something. Um, and what we were playing was a cover of the Simon and Garfunkel Sound of Silence, which is something that that band covered and, and was a massive, massive hit at that time. And I went in and realized, you know, this is a very serious concert. It was a very slick production. They gave us sort of headpieces and explained to us, yes, there's going to be a click track. You need to go in there, wait until you hear three, two, one, then sit down. Don't sit down early, otherwise the chair won't be there. Um, <laughs> it was it, it ran like clockwork. It was quite incredible. And I could hear synthesized strings through my headpiece that weren't mm. coming through the main audio mix. And I, I just knew in the back of my mind that if we were to, you know, stuff up, someone's over a button somewhere um, <laughs> waiting to switch to synthesized strings just in case we weren't, weren't any good. That didn't happen. But what... Right. What surprised me was this audience. It was about 14,000 people, and they were absolutely riveted. Every single one of them was just 100% focused on what was going on on stage and nothing else. And I, I find it odd that I feel like maybe I I reached more people with that strange little song that you know I hadn't put any time into. <laughs> Um, compared to some of the, you know, the wonderful great opera productions or Beethoven cycles that I've, I've done. Um, that one probably engaged more with, with the audience. Um, so it's interesting that, that, you know, I had a very sort of traditional classical career in, in a certain sense. But it's bookended by these two pop songs. Yeah! Wow! Fantastic! So it start it started with let's say Paganini, and it ended <laughs> with metal, and then also even, even a cover of Simon and Garfunkel "Sound of Silence." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no the silence. That's very interesting. And, so, and wow. their cover of it is in no way silent whatsoever. <laughs> it's it's um it's like a sonic boom. But it, it's 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 good. It's good. So, Thank you for for the listener. Maybe good just to you you, you explained a lot, but um, at the at the moment after you you switched careers, um, you're a photographer, and yes. uh, and that's that's your profession, and that's also how I uh, how I yeah uh, came um, to, to know uh, about you because you make very special photographs. So maybe just introduce yourself for. What do you do for a living, uh, and how does it work? And then we cycle back between the music and and uh, and and the rest. 
So I, I am a professional photographer now. This is something that had started during maybe even a little bit before my music career. Um, but I made the decision for, for various reasons um, to switch over when I came back to New Zealand in about 2016. And um, I started out photographing a bunch of different things, normally music related. So often musicians, um, classical musicians, especially because I could relate to them, um, doing their album covers, doing their promo shots. And then we got hit with COVID and lockdown and all of that. And you know, I couldn't photograph any musicians. They had all become unemployed or they were trapped in, you know, some, some country far away. Uh, cause of course New Zealand's very far from anywhere. Um, and so I, I turned around, you know, and, and looked, you know, what's around me. And there were, there were instruments and there were repair shops, um, and luthiers that, that were sitting there not really doing much. At the same time, there was some new camera technology that had, that had come out, some probe lenses. And so I thought, let's explore the inside of, of some of these instruments. Um, which is something that I'd always wanted to do. You know, I, I had become so incredibly intimately familiar with the outside of my own cello or various cellos, but I realized that in, you know, 25 years of playing them, I'd seen inside it maybe twice and only ever for a fraction of a second and never intact. It was always when the entire lid is off and everything's open for, for a pair. And I thought, you know, I'd, I'd love to just see really what's going on in there and, and make an image of that. Um, so I did that, uh, not with my cello. There happened to be a very fine cello, a, a locky Hill cello from 1780. He was a wonderful English wow. maker. Um, and I, I used that as one of the very first ones that I, I photographed. And how, how did you I do thought, this? How did you do this? Was it still <laughs> were still the strings on, or was it uh, everything detached? Um, did you you just mentioned the lens? Um, if you say photo, I, I would say every listener would now think, okay, it's like a, a camera. But um, can you? Yeah, yeah. So what it is? so this lens it looks like a long kind of snorkel or a long stick um mm -hmm. it's about two centimeters in diameter and it extends um about a foot out from the camera and the idea is you can stick it in holes and and see stuff um it's got a whole lot of sort of technical limitations to it it's very dark it's a little bit tricky to use but it does let you get into places and you know i knew enough from playing my cello that I thought, well, if I can find an instrument that's maybe getting serviced, maybe getting something done to it, hmm. we can take out the end pin at the bottom of the cello. Yeah. Um, and maybe not just the actual stick itself, but the assembly that's holding it in. Um, and then you've got an opening that's, that's large enough to go into. And this particular cello, it had been in, in somebody's estate unplayed for maybe 60 years. Um, and was in, in rough condition. It, it had its neck broken. Um, it's still in the process of being restored. So it'll be for sale in, in about a year. Um, they're being very careful with it because it's a, a very fine instrument. Um, but they trusted me enough. Um, you know, they knew I knew my way around the instruments and, yeah. you know, I've got these all enormously heavy lights and stuff that you have to balance precariously over it and make sure the instrument doesn't overheat all this kind of stuff. 
Yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Yeah. So we, we, we maybe we have to explain the listener. Um, if you put a lot of heat, uh, sorry, a, a lot yeah. of light, there is naturally a lot of heat. But this is an instrument from you just mentioned 1780 or 1780. Yes, yeah, around about then. Um, you could burn or or even ruin yeah. that instrument. And and the you know the varnish is a a key part of yeah. of any instrument. If anyone looks into the history of the the greatest cellos and violins, um, like Stradivarius, for example, um, you can see countless sort of academic articles on people trying to analyze the varnish. Did he have some secret ingredient in there? Was that the reason that that uh, you know those instruments sound the way they do? Um, so varnish is really, really important. It's also incredibly soft. They're not using a particularly durable mix here. So mm. it's only got to get, uh, you know, a, a sort of over 30 something degrees and you're at risk of it starting yeah. to, to bubble, which is a, a serious, serious problem. If that happens, you've devalued the instrument immediately. <laughs> um, so there was, a, there was a lot to be careful with there. Yeah, so yeah. A, a whole dangerous uh, setup. So if a um, yeah, if you you never would do this with a Stradivari, but I I would assume. But well, I I do will it. do it with a Stradivarius. I I have I have some instruments lined up, um, but we have other issues to work through. the The lighting and keeping it cool is is one of them. Um, the other is that the instruments that I want to photograph at the moment are violins. Hmm. And the problem with the violin, they they have the same hole in the base, but it's only six millimeters in yeah. diameter. And the lenses okay. available commercially are, um, you know, even if I modify them, um, they're about 11 millimeters is the slimmest that I can get. And we don't exactly want to, you know, drill or widen a hole in the bottom of a <laughs> priceless, you know, $10 million thread. I don't think my insurance will cover that. Um <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, you know, ethically, I, I, I absolutely opposed to that. Um, you know, I don't want to photograph any instrument that requires any kind of modification or, or something that can't be undone. Um, so, yeah, I'm working with a, a medical school here in Auckland to see if we can adapt certain lenses for that. Um, that's coming along very slowly because, you know, universities don't work that fast. Um, <laughs> I'd love it to be next week, but it, it, in all reality, it'll probably be next year. Um, so that's the goal. I, so I, I have this image of the inside of a cello. I have an awful lot of other instruments that I've been able to get into various ways. Um, it's starting to get more difficult Uh, the instruments that are missing from my list are, are missing for technical reasons that I have to overcome. But that's that's part of the excitement. That's part of the journey. Right. You know, I, I'm I'm now at the forefront of, you know, um, sort of camera and lens technology, trying to do things that nobody else is doing. Yeah. Um, and that that's thrilling. That's research. That's uh, experimental. Yeah. That's uh, prototyping the way of of doing this. And maybe we 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 just could. Um, I will put the the link in the show notes that people can see all these nice pictures and they are really incredible because what's I think so intriguing, it literally opens up a new room. So it's like, yeah. I think it's like an instrument, but hang on, if you light it and you get with the camera inside, it's like uh, everything out of wood. 
and uh, and and um, uh, and I'm I'm looking on on one of the pictures where there's also a little let's say a round uh, stick in the middle of it to 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 fix it something that you would not see on the outside and yeah it's, and and that's that's the sound post that's that's almost the soul of the instrument mm. um, it's incredibly important because that's taking all those vibrations that have come from the the strings down through the bridge. And it's transferring them to the back plate of the, the violin or cello. You know, any of those instruments have one of these. And that back plate is, is what is making most of the sound. Most of the vibrations come from that. Um, and so, yeah, if, if I were to photograph it without that stick there, it would feel a little bit false because, you know, I, I mean, professional instrumentalists, they'll spend months returning to luthiers again and again and they'll be moving that thing a fraction of a wow. millimeter in any direction and you know asking for it to be a tiny bit tighter a tiny bit looser just to get the exact sound that they want and they're often never satisfied um but that's a, a very very important part of the instrument that a lot of people i think don't even realize is there yeah yeah, yeah. i'm um, i didn't realize and i'm is it glued or is it just no. stick so But I would say if this instrument moves in some way, so there is the yeah. chance we just you just talked about millimeters, this would be would ruin the sound of uh, of a very expensive uh, instrument. Absolutely. I, I mean, you know, it sound posts get replaced a lot um, because they can they can bend, they can warp. Um, people might want it tighter. If you want it tighter, you need a longer post than the one you've got. So, you know, someone has to go and carve a new one. Um, but they don't use any glue with these because glue would dampen vi the vibrations that are going right. through the instrument. Right. Um, so, you know, it's important. And, and they are fitted with, uh, you know, an extraordinary precision. Normally, it, it almost looks like they're carved out of the same piece of wood because they fit mm -hmm. so perfectly. But that's just yeah. down to the skill of the luthier involved. Um so it's 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 really remarkable what these craftsmen what these makers are doing you know i i believe that you know in terms of woodworking of any kind a, a violin a fine violin is the the epitome of this it's got to be the most difficult thing yeah. to make and and you know they're making it with such precision you know they'll typically draw a kind of grid over the lid when they're doing this and use a micrometer to carve it down to a fraction of a millimeter yeah. of you know very very precise measurements that you'd never see in any other kind of woodwork it's quite quite astonishing and yeah. I, i like very much that you just mentioned the the craft because yeah. um, if let's say um, a lay person would would see a violin. He would say, "Okay, it looks nice. It's old." Which you just talked about the furnish, and you hear it. But the craft is not only on the outside. The craft actually is to make it perfect, so that it sounds perfect. So, meaning you inside is maybe more um, secret uh, than maybe on the outside. And I'm, I love it that. Exactly that point where you, excuse me, just stick in a, um, <laughs> a, a lens. <laughs> stick in a probe and have a look around and, and expose all the secrets. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I've had this. I, I mean, I remember talking to a couple of guitar makers and, and saying, look, I, I want to do these photographs of the inside of your, your guitars. And um, they're a little bit hesitant sometimes because some of them have their own kind of secret 
techniques. Um, mm. You know, they're, they're using sort of crossbars and so on in certain ways that others might not be, and they're not too happy for that to be sort of exposed to the world. Um, eventually, they, they usually come around when they, they sort of see the artistic merit of it. But, um, yeah, it is something that, you know, if they've made any mistakes, if they've covered up anything, hmm. going to see it. Because, as you said, you know, these spaces, once they're photographed, they look like rooms. They look yeah. enormous. And there's a um, there's an optical illusion that's that's going on yeah. there. Yeah. Um, and that's a sort of a conscious decision of mine um, to, to try and make these things look vast, you know, like... I want you to feel like you can walk around the inside of this cello as if it were, it's sort of been turned inside out and become its own concert hall. Um, and what's happening there is that, you know, we're, we're conditioned to see certain images and think certain things. So if you see an image of, of say a bug or an insect, um, with the typical lenses that, that are used for these, we call them macro lenses. Um, the insect might be in focus, but then everything in the background is going to be blurry. There's also a thing called focal compression that's going on there, which means <laughs> that things that are further away from the insect, you know, in real life, if something's further away, it appears smaller. But if you're using a kind of zoom lens and zooming in on something, things that are further away appear a kind of similar size to things at the front. And those two things, that blurriness and that, that size, that makes your brain realize, even if it's printed enormously, that your brain goes, oh, yeah, this is a small thing in a small space, and it knows that this is a small environment. Um, what I've done with these instruments is I try to get everything in focus from, you know, stuff that's almost touching the lens right at the front all the way back to as far as, as you know, we can possibly look down the instrument. Um, or even looking out of it to something else. Hmm. And when everything's in focus like that, um, your brain goes, oh, well, look, it's all clear and sharp. It can't be small. It must be big. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's sort of doing somersaults, trying to figure out what the scale of this thing is. Um, and the first impression people always have is, oh, look, it's an old ship, or it's a, yeah. um, right. <laughs> you know, all something like this. And and maybe Charles, we 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 have to tell because or or that's my assumption. Um, you don't just stick in the lens and make a snapshot. It's hard yeah. work. And how how many pictures are you doing of the inside just to get at the very end one high resolution picture? So typically, it's around a thousand shots. Right. Um, which is so. Let's breathe in. Thousand shots, and every shot has a different focus just to get exactly. everything sharp. And then yeah. you Photoshop it, or I don't know, somehow you get it together. There's a special software called Helicon Focus, and it's invented, it's developed in Ukraine. Um, and the, oh. the people there are still developing it and working. Um, they've moved cities uh, because of the, the shelling, but they're doing great. So any aspiring photographers out there, anyone who wants to play with this, I strongly recommend going and downloading a demo and maybe buying it if they enjoy it. It's a, it's a small way to support people over there. Um, just keep them working. Um, the link in the show notes where we do like. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and... Um, what it's, it's an incredible piece of software. It can analyze an image and 
determine whether something is in or out of focus. And so it will run through all of my thousand images and just extract the bits that are clear and sharp and then merge it with all the clear and sharp bits from all the other photos. I am pushing it to its limits. It doesn't normally want to use that many photos of that size. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, with enough sort of computing power, it it, it works. Um, and, you know, the reason I have to do this is that, uh, you know, these are very small, very dark spaces. And one of the, the trade-offs when they made these sort of probe lenses um, is that, you know, by making it long and thin like that, it also means that it can't let in a lot of light because that, that front element is so small. Um, so I have to use it with what we call the widest aperture. And what that really means is that for any one shot, I'm getting maybe one or two millimeters in focus and then everything else is a blur and that's it. Wow. So I have to sit there. Hang on. How big is the cello? Yeah, it's, um, you know, I'm not actually sure. I've never measured it, but it's, it's a lot of millimeters. Um, yes, I assume. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I take a shot, move the focus very, very slightly, take another shot, move it slightly. Then I have to pause because the cello is getting too warm and I have to turn the lights off. Come back a couple of minutes later, take another shot and repeat the whole process again. And, you know, sometimes that can take an entire day. Um, Certain instruments are easier than others, but you know that I, I I enjoy the process. To me, it's very similar to when I was practicing the cello. I, I think one of the wonderful things about being a musician, you know, when I grew up and and learning is that you get very comfortable working by yourself for extremely long periods of time. Um, so uh, you know i'm i'm i know that if i sit there and do this sort of iteration after iteration and and shot after shot after shot at the end i'm going to have something worthwhile and that's the same for me as if i'm practicing a a scale or a, or a passage from you know a, a strauss opera or something i know that with enough clean clear work that eventually i'm going to overcome whatever issue i'm going to have in this and that kind of patience that that sort of long-term patience and that ability to concentrate for an extended period of time is something that i i value very very deeply from my training as a musician yeah um i think um, in the pre-talk we also um or uh, i mentioned um, richard sennett and his book the craftsman and funny enough he's also a cellist so <laughs> and uh, he, he talks about that uh, rehearsal that playing these scales and it's it's nothing boring it's something you, no, you have no. to do and at the very end it's not like you know okay got it i've been there no you come to a place where you see new possibilities instead of just checking it off and saying okay this was it yeah i i mean i you know i hated scales when i was a kid And I, I never wanted to practice them. They were in the exams and I thought, why, why am I doing this? I can get just as good by, by playing the piece, um, just by itself. Why do I have to do all these, these exercises? And it wasn't, it wasn't until much later in my career, um, that I, I really started to appreciate what they could do. Um, I'd had issues with, with intonation, um, for a lot of my life and, um, 
you know, I'd have people telling me you're out of tune, you're out of tune. And, and it's fine for someone to tell you that, but if you can't hear it, mm-hmm. you can't, you can't fix it. Um, and so I started um, playing scales alongside drones um, a drone, drone meaning one steady sound. Yeah, meaning a, a steady sound. And I'd, I'd try and find a, a drone that had not just a clean kind of sine wave sound, but something with a, a little bit crunchy with a lot of overtones. I found mm. that a lot easier to actually tell if I was in tune against it. And you start to hear some some really kind of wonderful things. You know, if you play the same note as one of these drones, if you move ever so slightly out of tune with it, you can hear a, a kind of beat going on yeah. um, where it's sort of going in and out of phase. It's like binaural beats, I think. Yeah, yeah, I, I forget the, the proper term for it. But um, once you're kind of tuned into that, yeah. it's, it's exciting to listen for. Like yeah. You know it's 100% yes, this is correct, or, or no, it's not. And that was a bit of a revelation to be able to say, Yes, I'm I'm right. I yeah. I'm perfectly in tune. And that became quite a sort of meditative task. I could spend a long time practicing these scales to these drones and it felt I guess a little similar to to sort of stretching does when you're when you're exercising. Um it felt sort of liberating and I became a little bit addicted to doing that. Um And of course, my, you know, as soon as I'd been doing that for a, a couple of years, um, everything started taking off. I was winning more auditions. I was getting better positions. And it was sort of making that connection between, you know, the, the technical exercises and, and, you know, getting them to, to really help what you're playing, but also just really understanding what the technical exercises are doing and, and being able to, sort of self-analyze them in a way that you knew was right or wrong. It was that level of understanding that I'd been missing at the beginning that, that changed everything. And that, that leads into my photography. So everything I do with photography tends to be very, very slow. So if I'm not photographing the inside of these instruments, my other big passion is astrophotography, photographing the stars at night. Um, and that's a similar thing. You can spend hours, days, what nights even, um, <laughs> trying to get a, a single shot through, you know, lots of lots of repetition. And yeah, I, I think what I'm really doing there is is just another variation on playing the cello. I I like this analogy between playing a musical instrument, in that case the cello, and also photography and. You know the quote from uh, Robert Frank that um, the eye should learn to listen before it looks. And I love that quote very much. And I think you're the, you're the best example uh, <laughs> of this. So just coming up with special photography because you're just a good listener. And it, yeah, it, I, would this be a takeaway a takeaway for people listening now to to us that are on the intersection of making music or maybe also doing some other art and uh, and photography i i think so i mean you know i i would not have been able to do this kind of photography without my my musical career um you know not just um, because obviously, uh, you know, I've got access to instruments and knowledge 
of instruments and so on. But it's the, the training that I had as a musician is, is critical to how I work with, with my art now. So I think anybody that's on the, on the fence of, of changing from a music career into something else, which is absolutely terrifying. I've got to say, and, and a very, very scary thing to do. You know, when you're so invested in something, you've spent countless hours doing this one thing to, to jump ship and, and change career is, um, for many people, it's just too much and, and they can't do it. And they may be stuck in a, in a job somewhere that they don't particularly enjoy. Maybe the groups, you know, um, not fulfilling them in the way they would want. Um, but I think you need to realize that, that as a musician, you are equipped with some really quite outstanding skills that so many people, um, don't have. You know, you're, you're able to get in front of these vast audiences, maintain, you know, a, a level of calmness or, or even, you know, work through whatever fear you have and, and you're able to perform at this sort of Olympic level which, you know, anybody that, that is a, a professional sort of salaried musician, I, I equate them to, to Olympic athletes. I think it's just as hard, maybe more difficult to get a, a full-time job in a symphony orchestra than it is to represent your country in a, in a sport. Um, you know, the, the numbers of, of orchestral positions are, are so tiny, um, that it, it really does equate. So, I think it's important to, to sort of realize your own self-worth in that case and, and the skills that you've got and that they can apply to all kinds of other things. Right. And I think it's also some kind of skills on one, on one side, but it's also some kind of pattern recognition, the pattern, how you rehearse and the pattern, how you explore or prototype the way, how in this case you photograph the inside of an instrument plus I would like to push a little bit further because you did um, uh, your research went even even further and, and I'm, I'm still looking at the at the cello inside and you uh, also used uh, AI artificial intelligence to do something with the room. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. Yeah, so so AI is something new that I'm I'm excited about. I, I'm always interested in new technologies and and what's around and. Obviously, this is not just exploring the latest lenses with the camera, but the latest software that I can use. And, you know, I started seeing all these images with AI and the connection was, was immediate. I, I thought, well, these, these images look like rooms. Um, what if someone were to actually build a room that looked like one of these photos or looked like one of these instruments? Um, And so I, I sort of delved into a piece of software called Midjourney. Yeah. Um, and Midjourney lets you put in a text prompt and uh, sometimes a reference image as well. And I was able to say, okay, take a, take a look at this photo of the cello and tell me what some, you know, extraordinary architect like Zaha Hadid would do were they to design a room based around this cello and okay. what it, kind of spits out is, is quite extraordinary. I don't know what Zaha Hadid would think. Um, but to me, it, it was an absolutely, you know, fascinating space. Yeah. So, and, and it was literally Zaha Hadid. It was literally yeah. Zaha Hadid. Yeah, right? It, it really feels like it. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think the, the 
future of this is is fascinating. I, there's a lot of people that are worried that it's going to destroy artistic careers and so on. Um, because, you know, there's even AI that's being programmed to write music now. Yeah. Um, and some of the stuff it does is, is pretty good. But I think, you know, it still needs the inputs. It still needs someone to tell it what to do. It still needs someone to tell it what's good, what's bad, a critical ear. Um, mm. And you can be the master of, of that. And that's not too different to, say, being a conductor when yeah. you're not directly, you know, controlling the instrument. Instead, you're prompting it, you're guiding it, you're you're nudging it in different directions, um, but you're also letting it do its own thing. You know, that, that wonderful control that conductors can have over an orchestra is, is well, depending on the conductor, of course, um, is very similar to what I, I think, you know, an artist can have over AI. And, you know, when these things come together, very well, then then you create something extraordinary. Mm, I like that analogy because we're talking about prompting <laughs> and not just conducting. And if you use AI, you're using a prompt, meaning um, in your case, you just mentioned Saha Hadid. And I don't know if every listener knows who Saha, Saha Hadid is, but she was an architect that first had an idea And uh, the first, uh, the building that they, uh, that it was realized in real life, do you know which, uh, what it is? I, I don't know. No. It's the, it's the, 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 the fire brigade building uh, in Weil am Rhein. It's on the, on the German uh, uh, Swiss border. And it's an incredible room. So if you ever be there, let's say near Zürich or Freiburg, Germany or Zürich, Switzerland, um, it's absolutely, you, you can have a, a look at it. Meaning um, you as the prompter have to know what Zahadid stands for. And yeah. if you yeah. would say, do it in like, I don't know, uh, someone else, then it would be different. And to, to put the, push the analogy to conducting, you must have a vision, an idea of something to prompt so that you can use it. So yeah, I like that. Uh, analogy. Yeah, a absolutely. I mean, you, you can't come from a, from a blank space. Um, you know, you've, you've got to have an idea and, you know, I, I find this interesting with, with classical music, especially, um, we are sort of, um, we're playing pieces that have been played a lot. Um, you know, how do you find something new to say with Beethoven's fifth symphony, um, where that's. 200 recordings that have been done by some of the greatest artists, greatest conductors in the world. Yet, if it's scheduled, you you have to. You have to, to you know, find something interesting, something new to say with this. You have to, to explore every possible corner of it. And there's these things are, are so vast and so complex that there's there's always going to be something there. And and this was the same thing with, with my photography. I'm looking at these instruments. You know, there's a lot of photographs of violins in the world, a lot of photographs of violinists. Um, and so I'm looking at this going, you know, what can I add to this? What can I do that either hasn't been done or maybe it has been done, but I can do it in that way a little bit better. Um, and, you know, I'm constantly sort of striving towards that. Right. Um, I'm just thinking of you, um, Take Beethoven's fifth, what you just said. So um, 
I'm sometimes I, I would like to because every every music is good. So classical is not better than jazz, or jazz is mm. not better than pop, or pop not better than folk or indigenous music. Um, but how can you um, convey that? special thing that you would say you have to go to that performance of Beethoven fifth. And because this conductor is doing something so differently, what, what is it? So how, how can we explain people to let's go, go to the orchestra, go to a symphony, uh, go to a concert and, and dive into. Look, if I, if I knew, The answer to that, I'd I'd be employed as a as a marketer for every major symphony in the world, and I'd be, you know, um, <laughs> I'd be rich. Um, that's a that's a very very tricky thing to do. You know, I I think that, you know, once you're at a, at any kind of national orchestra level, um, you know, these these groups are are outstanding. You know, the the New Zealand Symphony, the the L.A. Philharmonic, um, you know. All of these groups have something important to say, something beautiful to present. Every soloist that comes through, their their personality is going to mix with this music. It's it's like seeing a, you know, a play with with different people. They're always going to be just slight differences, just because of who they are, and that is what's going to make the the music special. Um, so you know whatever you go to it's going to be different to your recording there's going to be bits that that you know if you've especially if you've listened to this piece before you're going to go oh, i've i've never heard that i've never heard this um and that should keep it exciting every time now convincing people to go to it um that's uh you know that's a thing that that orchestras are struggling with worldwide to be honest um you know there is a decline in in audience um, my own sort of small contribution to this is, is that, you know, if I'm photographing a, a musician, I want them to look as if, uh, you know, to, to sort of represent some of that, that music. So if they're playing a concerto that's particularly energetic and ferocious or something, you know, we might have it so that their, their violin is on fire. Um, while they're playing, which we, we don't actually set any violins on fire. I should mention, you know, I, I do that all with, um, vapor and, and LED lights and, you know, practical effects, but, but nothing dangerous to the instrument. Although there is one viola that a friend of mine plays now that sort of permanently smells slightly of cherry after blowing <laughs> a, after blowing smoke through it. Um, so yeah, for me, you know, I realized that, that, a lot of people's first engagement with a, a concert is completely visual. There's no, um, you know, people have the sound turned off by default on, on Facebook or Instagram or whatever. And if it's not visually arresting, um, they're going to scroll past and they'll never take the time to, to look at your concert and see what's going on there. So I think that the visuals have to be incredibly impactful and, that's where I feel that I can help as someone that, that understands both the music and the, the photographic side, I can sort of bring those two worlds together. And hopefully, you know, the, the first thing I'll do when I'm photographing a, a person is say, you know, if they're an opera singer or something, I'll say, right, what, what are your favorite roles? What, what 
do you sing the most or, or what do you wish you could sing the most? And, you know, they might mention certain operas. They might be something incredibly dark, like, like Tosca, or it, it might be a, a, a comedic opera. And I will try to draw inspiration from that to inject mm. some sort of personality into the shoot and hopefully engage much more rapidly with the, with the viewer who can then become a listener. Yeah. That's a little bit like the quote we just talked about. So you first have to yeah. listen before you look, or in this case, you uh, you might uh, you might shoot. Uh, you know, and also when when I was playing, um, you know, from as as early as I can remember, um, when I was getting into a piece, I would be creating these very detailed sort of visual scenes in my in my head about what was going on. And, you know, there would usually be some kind of story, almost programmatic, um, with, with characters and everything that are, are going on some kind of journey. And that would help me express the music. And I just did that naturally. And now I realize, hey, maybe I can actually turn some of this into photographic work and, and sort of spin it around. Um, so that's another project that I've got sort of going on in the background as well. Um, but I think a lot of musicians are creating visual images from pieces that might otherwise seem sort of abstract. Um, and at the same time, of course, you've got a, an awful lot of wonderful pieces of music that are based on, you know, visual things. If you think of like Rachmaninoff's Isle of the Dead, based on, on you know, a very famous painting uh, by an artist whose name escapes me right now. But um you know, or the, the pieces by sort of Ravel that are based on, on fountains and, you know, obviously Mussorgsky's pictures is an exhibition. So this visual thing is there and, and I think it, it possibly could be exploited and, and explored more. You played in different orchestras on, in, in different countries. You, you played in, as far as I know, in Patagonia, in Chinese orchestras, in the uh, City Symphony of uh, Sao Paulo and but but you always played let's say western classical music in these different countries and these different cultures how did this work where was it, the difference is there a story that you can share yes yeah, so look my my career started in china so i'd i'd finished um a degree in Australia. I was desperately looking for work and auditioning anywhere I could and I sent off a recording and they said, you know, come to this place called Shenzhen. And I went, yeah, fine, accepted the job and then had to Google where it was. I had absolutely no idea. Turns out it's a, an absolutely enormous city that, that wraps around Hong Kong with some 20 million people. Um, And a, a truly extraordinary place. I mean, in 1980, it didn't exist. It was a tiny 100,000-person fishing village, and then they they gave it special economic zone status, and it's now the largest um, migration in the history of humanity is to the city. Oh, to Shenzhen. To Shenzhen, which is quite astonishing. Um, for a, a couple of decades, they um, were finishing a, a boulevard and a massive skyscraper every day. Um And yeah, the, the orchestra there, we played mostly classical music, a few Chinese pieces, um, but they were always in a, a sort of Western style. Um, 
I, I don't think they were particularly successful as pieces. I don't think that the, the translation to our instruments worked well. I think they worked better on the instruments that they were intended for, um, which, you know, I mean, if you've ever heard a, a really good Urhu player or, or someone playing the, the bamboo flute, I, yeah. I've never heard an instrument as fast as a bamboo flute. Um, you know, there's absolutely no delay. They, they don't have keys. It's all with holes, but it, it still yep. has a reed over the, the sort of mouthpiece. So it projects, uh, they're incredibly loud instruments. Um, and you know, we got to play with the best of the best of, of those, those performers. And that was absolutely thrilling. Even if I didn't think that the, the orchestration was, was great. Um, you know, in, in Shenzhen, we were very fortunate that um, at that time, there were two very famous pianists who were sort of competing with each other to see who would become this global superstar. One was Yundi Li, the other was Lang Lang. And we were almost their practice orchestra. These guys were already internationally renowned. Um, but I, I think they knew that they would never be criticized in front of a home audience mm. um so we got to hear them first and and at their worst <laughs> typically um <laughs> you know whenever they were were playing a new concerto they'd, they'd do it with shenzhen and then head off to you know chicago or, or wherever um so it was fascinating watching these guys develop because occasionally you know we'd, we'd hear this concerto once and then uh, you know a year later they'd come back and play it again and it would be completely transformed and then you'd, you'd sit there and go okay yeah now i understand why you know lang lang is is this extraordinary global tour de force he also happens to be an extremely nice guy um so you know i i, I like the fact he, he is um you know he he brings a lot of personality and character um to to the rehearsals but it was never ego. Um, you know, he's happy to, to chat to anyone. He's so excited about the music that he's playing. It's, it's completely infectious. And of course, once he, once he starts performing, you just get swept up in it and it, it uplifts all the other musicians as well. Um, you know, the only, the only danger is that sometimes, you know, what they're playing can be so beautiful. You, you almost forget to, come in and play yourself because you want to, you want to listen to it. You're, you're just transfixed. Um, but you know, so we were incredibly fortunate to, to play with these guys. Um, but yes, it was always sort of Western music and, and especially at that time in China. So this is around about 2006, 2007. Um, they were embracing everything Western you'd see these big sort of wine shops opening up and, and all these kind of luxury items coming in. Um, I then went to an orchestra deep in the center of China. It was the first private orchestra in the country, uh, the Guiyang Symphony. Um, so that's sort of just south of the Sichuan province, if anybody knows where that is. Um, incredibly spicy hot food extraordinarily beautiful area it's where all the the sort of cast mountains those those sort of pillars of rock that just leap out of the ground like like the movie avatar um it's where all of that is located um mm. tremendously beautiful place and i was playing there and and 
that's sort of rekindled my love for photography because I, I'm just in this astonishing environment. And so my time off, I, I bought a cheap camera and started going around taking photos, which I hadn't done since I was in high school. Um, and that grew from there until finally the photography sort of eclipsed the cello playing. But what I found interesting there was that the orchestra, you know, we had a good audience, um, but I was never certain whether they were there to enjoy the music or whether they, whether they were there to be seen enjoying the music. Um, and that held true for a, a few places. I mean, that was the same in, in Brazil with the operas. Um, you know, we had this extraordinary opera house, absolutely beautiful. It's almost a brick for brick replica of, of Paris opera with the big double staircase at the front and the, the gilded box seats everywhere. Um, and there, you know, to be fair, their operas are absolutely world-class. I mean, all the singers were from the Met, from Covent Garden. Um, the musicians in that orchestra are absolutely world-class. Um, but, you'd, you know, it would be 36 degrees and people are turning up in helicopters quite often um, oh. to, to come to the concerts. I mean, there are some very wealthy people in Brazil and they'd, they'd be turning up in their mink coats and all their gold necklaces. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking, you, you cannot possibly be comfortable. I'm sweating, you know, uh, you know, there were times where they'd say, okay, you're, you're finally allowed to take off your, your tuxedo jacket because otherwise, you know, you're not going to be seeing the, the music for the sweat running through your eyes. Um, and these people are still wearing their, their mink coats and their, their heavy gold chains and whatever. Um, so it was this funny mix of, of sort of, elitism. Um, but then again, you know, there were also a, a vast number, a large number of people there that, that did honestly enjoy the music because the, the tickets, especially in Brazil, were very, very cheap. Um, in China, I felt that what we were as an orchestra was more of an expensive business card. Um, so our, our boss was one of the five richest people in the province. And if you're one of the five richest people in any Chinese province, you're, you're doing okay. Um, you know, he had mining and property development and all kinds of stuff, retail things going on. And I saw it most clearly once we had a, um, a world conference for the environment, uh, that was there and it was full of sort of ex heads of state. So Arnold Schwarzenegger was there. Tony Blair was there. A, a lot of these sort of, you know, ex-prime ministers, ex-presidents. Um, and, you know, the first thing that, that happened at that conference was the opening show with our orchestra. And that meant that our boss got the first introduction to these guys and, and got to sit with them and dine with them and meet them and all the interactions before any of the other four richest people in the um in the province got to. So we were a um we were definitely a tool in China to be used for for sort of economic gain in a very roundabout way that I, I would never have imagined that an orchestra could be used in, in such a fashion, but that's that's what it was. Um a few years after I left, uh things took a bit of a turn for that group. Um the Vice uh, president of the orchestra got up and um, started a speech with, you know, there's nothing to worry about, but, and of course, <laughs> you know, 
then you're warned. <laughs> yeah, so everybody's immediately worried. And, and he said, look, the, the boss has had to go away for medical treatment. He'll be back in a couple of months. Um, and I think he said to go overseas. Uh, I, I wasn't quite sure about the translation from Chinese for that one. Um, but the boss disappeared, his wife disappeared, their daughter disappeared from Singapore, and none of them have been seen for 10 years. Um, and that's it. The state took over the orchestra, fired half of them, reduced the salaries by 50%. And so, yeah, there was definitely something to be worried about. <laughs> um, but, you know, that that's that's life in China, um, in, in orchestras in China. it's They can be wonderful. And, and when Chinese orchestras are playing at their best, they are... Um, you know, they're really competitive. They can be outstanding. Um, but, you know, your contract is, is meaningless and um, it, it's a sort of fragile, fragile existence. It could go any way. Um, in China, I, I mean, I, we saw that in, in Brazil as well, whenever a new conductor would come in and this Brazilian orchestras are a bit famous for this. They would find reasons to to fire a lot of people and bring in people that, of their own. Um, oh, it's like a like a big yeah. uh, multinational when a new CEO comes, <laughs> some people <laughs> exactly have to, have to go so, and new people come in. So there's also an analogy there. <laughs> yeah, I, and I mean, when you say that, it sounds like oh yeah, that's fine, that's fair, that's 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 what happens. That's that's the world of business. But imagine that you know your country only has one one equivalent business, you know, one multinational. So anybody that gets moved from that group, at the very, very least, they're going to have to move city. They're probably going to have to move country to support their family. Um, and and they're moving to another country that also probably only has one or two, you know, sort of viable groups that they can they can get into and make a living off. And that's terrifying. And and I found that that conductors would sort of, some conductors, not not all, but some would sort of hold that over people and, and use that as a, um, you know, as, as a bit of a stick to, mm. to gain power and, and control over people. Um, and so how was the collaboration in between the musicians? Because this sounds like this might have an in, uh, influence. And, and by the way, I still keep the analogy with the business world because um, it seems the same. So, what does it? What's the culture? What does it? Uh, yeah, how does the culture change uh, in uh, circumstances like this? So, yeah, you, you've immediately got a culture of fear. Um, you know, no one, everyone's terrified of talking to the conductor. Um, this can can create massive problems if, if someone's made a mistake. Um, you know, we noticed this in the opera house. If, if something hadn't been built by the set designers or something hadn't been ordered and there was a problem, they would hide that from the conductor until the last possible second when it's too late for him to maybe, you know, call in acquaintances or friends that might have been able to help. Um, and, and that can create enormous problems. Um, at the same time, that, that culture of fear, you know, people practiced people worked really, really hard because they didn't want to be the target. Um, and, you know, at the same time, this conduct particular conductor, who I won't, I won't name, but, um, you know, he would also, he would give out compliments occasionally. And, and when you got a compliment from this guy, wow, you felt absolutely elated because, you know, moments before you'd been sort of shaking in your boots. 
Um, and some of the concerts I did with that group were by far the best I've ever played. And I look at back and I go, my gosh, that was, that was an outstanding concert. That was breathtaking. But, you know, I couldn't keep going with that level of pressure. I, I had to leave because eventually I just cracked. I mean, I, I was never the target of the, the, the sort of, I, I don't want to say abuse, but of, you know, I was, I was never in the, in the crosshairs, but all my, so many of my friends were, and quite a few of them lost their jobs. And I just, I just got burnt out. And I think that happened to a lot of people there. So you're going to get spectacular results short term, but you're also going to lose your staff. Um, and for someone to leave an, an orchestral, a salaried orchestral position, that means that things are really, things are really tough. I mean, it's not like you can just jump on LinkedIn and, and you know, someone's going to offer you another position. Yeah. No, you're going to have to absolutely shut down everything in your life for, for months just to prepare for a, a single audition somewhere else, fly overseas, spend money on, you know, accommodation on transport to play for maybe two minutes in front of a, a black screen to a, a panel that don't know who you are competing with a, a couple hundred other people. Um, and you don't know on the other side. Yeah, they, they don't know. Everything's supposed to be anonymous, um, at least usually in the first rounds of these auditions. Um, yeah, no, I'm just asking, how is yeah. it for you? You just get in, you fly hours you invest money time and then you sit in front of a black screen and you don't see the other side if they raise their eyebrows or a smile or anything else it's terrifying because uh, you know you've spent all these months working on these these little excerpts so what they'll do is they will send you a a, a list of the hardest fragments of all the repertoire ever written for for this and, and sometimes it's more than an hour of of music and not just like playing an hour-long piece you know if i'm playing an hour-long symphony or whatever there's probably just a, a a handful of bars in there where i have to really concentrate to make sure i don't mess up where i have to put in those hours of work beforehand to make sure it goes smoothly um, what you're doing for the, the hour of repertoire that they've sent you is just those bits back to back, all of them together. It's, it's incredibly tough. Um, and you typically, you know, you've spent the last couple of months being so self-critical because you're, you're trying your best to analyze problems and, and fix them that once you get into the audition, it's, it's very hard to turn that sort of self-criticism off. Um, and that, that can give you problems because as soon as you hear one mistake, your, your brain goes, oh gosh, I hope I don't make another. And then you're distracted and you immediately make another and it snowballs yeah. and, and you get into trouble. Um, it takes a lot of, of sort of deep psychological preparation to, to be able to sort of peak on that, that day. Um, and it's, it's a tough thing. It's a very tough thing to do. I mean, I did, I think 36 auditions in my career. Um, I was a finalist in, in 10 and I won five. Um, but I have absolutely no desire to go through that process ever again. It's, it's the toughest thing I, I've, I've ever done, really. Have you seen the film Tar? I haven't yet. <laughs> I, I've, I've been meaning to, but um, 
yeah, I've been away traveling in, in South America for a few months, and, and that's on my list. But I saw it last week. And yeah, I, I'm also wondering whether, you know, often when I see movies based around classical music, it's it's so personal to me. Um, it, it It's either I, I spot all the things that are unrealistic and, and it becomes, well, that's that's not how it is, or it's it's too realistic. And um, you're sort of back in in a space you might not want to be in. Um, I, I remember this with the with the film Whiplash. Yeah, um, wonderful film for for those who don't know it about a, a young drummer going through a, a school in New York with a, a very tough jazz teacher, and he's like some of the conductors we've been talking about. He's one of these people that that will throw out abuse and and very rarely throw out sort of um, compliments. Um, but yeah, I remember seeing that and, and I, I watched it with some friends and they went, oh yeah, great film, really impactful, but surely it's, you know, it's all a bit exaggerated. It's all dramatized for theater. And, and I had to turn around and go, actually, no, that that's, you know, in, in some of the groups, definitely not everyone. And with some conductors, so definitely not all the time, that's exactly what it was like. Um, with the sole exception, a tiny bit of a spoiler for people that that conductors generally don't throw chairs at people, um, or symbols, <laughs> or symbols. Yeah, but they they may, um, you know, they 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 have that threat over you potentially losing your career. So that I think is is potentially more devastating than a than a chair. Um, so look, it's it's a. Uh, it's a fascinating world and, and people might be getting the idea from, from what I'm saying that this was all this one big dramatic event. Um, absolutely not. There, there were highlights. I, I, you know, in these orchestras, I traveled the world. So I've, I've played on the, you know, the edges of the, the Taklamakan desert. Um, we've played in all the major sort of halls and opera houses through Europe. I've played with, some of the greatest soloists in the world and, and seen all these extraordinary places, worked with some extraordinary people. I mean, you know, I even, I was in a, a, a chamber orchestra in sort of the forests of Patagonia for three years, met my wife there. Um, so it's taken me extraordinary places. I've done extraordinary things. Um, what stands out? I, I, I mean, it's it's hard to say what stands out. Everything was was so fascinating. I, I think, um, I mean, Patagonia became a, a lifelong love affair. Well, literally, I met my wife there, um, and and playing in these extraordinary, unbelievable places. I mean, we we went to play in a town called Tortel, which is deep deep in in um, the Aysen region of Patagonia. And this town, to get to it, first you have to fly to a place called Kayake, which is, is part of Chile, but you can't drive there because you're getting into the fjords um, and there's no roads that can connect this. The only way to drive to it would be to take a, an enormous detour over the Andes and through Argentina. Um, so you fly to Kayake and then you drive eight hours on a dirt road south. Um, and this was with an orchestra full of Full of instruments and a, a rickety bus and then you have to get out and walk for an hour and a half because there's still no roads that go right into town and when you're finally there um they call it sort of the venice of the south it's um 
it's all these wooden bridges and tiny wooden houses mm. um, connecting these dozens and dozens of fjords. Um, it's an absolutely astonishing place. Uh, and when we were there, so I think this was 2011, they'd got their first cell phone tower just a year before. Um, there's no landlines going into the area. Um, before that, everything, every communication was done by radio. And it's sort of always on these open channels. So every house knows everybody else's business, yeah. you know, um, <laughs> they'd get on the radio and say, you know, look, is Bob down at the bar again? Can someone <laughs> send him up home? He's late for dinner or something. Um, you know, extraordinary little town that, that, that has developed in its own way and, and feels so isolated. And for us to go there and, and perform and, and, you know, we had a, a couple of, marvelous opera singers with us so we were playing fragments from you know Rossini all these Carmen all, all kinds of stuff um and you know they'd never heard this possibly never heard this stuff before at all and certainly never heard it live and that was a, a major event for for these people and they absolutely adored it so in a weird way you know that that was closer to the experience that I had with the metal band Disturbed, where you've got a, an audience that's transfixed. Um, and, and, you know, I absolutely adored that kind of concert. And of course, as you know, as my photography was developing at this time, and you're surrounded by the fjords and the forests of Patagonia, um, you know, this is the kind of landscape where you could sort of put your camera on automatic and point it backwards over your shoulder and it would be a National Geographic the next weekend. Um, it's just an a absolutely breathtaking place. So that's what uh, um, sort of really kick-started my, my photography career there. I started doing an awful lot of landscape work, um, which was absolutely thrilling. Uh, but then after, after three years in that orchestra, I thought, you know, this is a wonderful little group, but it's not quite progressing at the speed that I want it to. I don't feel like I'm playing at the the level I want to. So I, I started auditioning again. I won the job in, in Sao Paulo, um, which was, you know, I was very lucky to get. Um, and then I went to Sao Paulo and, and, you know, I couldn't take my camera outside because if you, you know, if your phone rings in Sao Paulo City, uh, you don't, answer it on the street ever you go into a shop you go into a cafe or something and, and answer it there or call the person back um because if you have it against your ear in the street someone will grab it and and it's gone mm. and actually that's what i i experienced that or i saw that happen to someone else um outside the opera house while they were waiting you know to go to a, a performance on the very first night that i arrived um so you know the this lady had her family sitting on the steps of the opera house, this beautiful building. There was a queue of a lot of, of people waiting to go into the opera. It seems all right. Um, puts her family on the stairs, holds up her phone. The police are about three or four meters away. Um, you know, just looking around and this guy comes past on a bike and the phone's gone before you can blink an eye. He turned the corner and the back of the opera house is a place where the police won't go. Um, because there are, um, in, in Brazil, you have what we call favelas, mm -hmm. uh, which are, are sort of slums, I guess. Um, but the unusual thing with Sao Paulo is you've got them in the center of the city, in the middle of town. So you've got these massive skyscrapers that 
maybe they were incomplete or maybe they were sort of municipal buildings um, with a couple of guards on on the weekend and no one in there. And every so often, 3,000 people will turn up and just say, well, this is ours now. We're living here. Um, and sometimes the guards that are there will say, well, look, do, do you, I'll, I'll keep working here. Do you guys want to pay me instead? And, and they come to an agreement. And most of these people are, are very nice. They just can't afford to live in the middle of town and play normal, pay normal rents. Um, you know, they're, they're retail. They're working in shops. They're working in all, all kinds of things. Um, but because of the nature of these buildings, they also attract sort of drug runners and this kind of thing who will set up office in the center of the buildings where if the police were to try and go in, it's a battle floor by floor by floor and they can't possibly get there. So there were about eight or 10 of those surrounding the opera house in Brazil in a, in a horseshoe. Um, and, you know, so I, I couldn't take my camera outside. I couldn't do the, the sort of low light photography, landscape photography that I loved. So I started turning my lens towards the, the musicians that were around me, started portraiture, mm -hmm they started paying me for it and i thought you know this is this is quite nice um also i i enjoyed the fact that when i've taken a photo um it doesn't disappear it doesn't vanish in the space of an echo um like music does <laughs> yeah it's something permanent and i i can show people again and again and i don't have to i don't have to practice it again before yeah. i show it to them right and i i find that very liberating i i like the fact that what i'm doing now is is creating a body of work that's going to be around hopefully long after i am and people can still see it i i regret not recording more when i was performing um hmm. that's something i i wish i'd done but um yeah, there is something rather nice about, you know, putting all that work in and having something permanent and tangible that's nice. a, a refreshing change for me. And nice that you mentioned this. That's also um, sometimes we say maybe photography is more the product and playing music is more a service. So you have to do the service all the time and the product you can sell or maybe do an update or maybe bring in artificial intelligence or what else yeah i mean because that's the thing you know the number of concerts that i i gave and i thought hey that was wonderful you know what a what an experience that was that was so thrilling that was so exciting the audience that were there they'd go they'd agree but you know i i can't tell my mum about it and say well i can but she can't experience it that moment is gone um unless it's it's perhaps been recorded um and unless it's been recorded well, then then you know they may not get that same sense of of excitement out of it that that you do when it's live. Um, but uh, you know it's it's just a, a difference in in the the kind of careers and something that I'm I'm enjoying that change. Yeah. So wow, we we covered a lot between making music, doing photography, a um, lot of stories, also traveling, traveling different countries. Maybe maybe a last uh, question, and yeah, it sounds like like the first one. Um, I, I was just triggered what you um, how you described the the way how you how you went to Tortel uh, in in Patagonia. And I wonder, how did you listen? On that place because you were bringing music to these people that they never have heard 
uh, there were an inten intense feeling like you just described uh, the the playing with the metal band later. But yeah. What kind of music or what kind of sounds um, had an impact on you on all your journeys? Oh, I mean, I, I've talked briefly about the the experiences in China with the um, sort of indigenous musicians there. Um, there was one that that really stood out that that sends shivers up my spine every time I think about it, and I wish I knew her name. I, I don't, unfortunately, but she was a Mongolian singer. So people might have might be familiar with sort of Mongolian throat singing, which is what the men do, where they sing in multiphonics. Um, so that means you've got two notes sounding at once from from one voice box, which is unreal. Um, very, very unusual noise. But the the female singers from there have their own way of producing sound that is a very nasal kind of sound, um, but it's unbelievably loud. It's, it's astonishingly loud. Um, and I, I think that this was used as a as a method of communication you know they would be singing to tell people where they were and you've got to be able to hear that across the plains kilometers away um and so you know this was i've i've sung with some very very great opera singers sorry i've played with some very great opera singers um who can cut through an orchestra and you know but nothing like this she could drown out the entire sort of 120 piece symphony with absolutely what looked like no effort. Although I'm sure that there's a hell of a lot of training and practice in behind there and something about the actual music that she was singing as well, um, which was a little bit sort of pentatonic. So it's this, mm -hmm. you know, if you only play music with the black keys on a piano, you're getting a sound that's similar to this. It's a different scale system that, that to Western classical music. Um, And yeah, it was absolutely haunting, absolutely extraordinary. Um, so, you know, that stays with me. Um, and I, I think it sort of maybe even woke up uh, a little bit in me. Uh, you know, I, I've got to respect these um, these other kinds of music, these, these ancient kinds of music, um, understand that they're not simpler than what I do. They are just as tough. They are just as complicated. Uh, they are completely different. And I'm certain that I don't completely understand what's going on there. And I, I you know, I may not appreciate all of it. Um, but that comes into to sort of how we were playing when I was in, in Tortel, especially. Um, you know, I felt that when we were there, we needed to give a stronger performance than than anywhere else. Because you you wanted to kind of really push the emotions in this piece because you wanted to make sure that these people weren't sort of ambiguous about it and go, oh, maybe is that supposed to be tragic, happy? I'm not sure. You wanted that to be crystal clear. Um, so I found that that actually sort of enhanced how we played because we were, were thinking that, you know, this is an audience that, that you know, they weren't listening to this before so we need to make it really really good so that it becomes really obvious um you know i i think maybe in in the photography side of things that sort of comes through as well when i'm i'm taking portraits especially um 
I want there to be some kind of emotion and impact in there so that people, you know, I, I, you get a lot of people saying, people that don't listen to classical music, and this is a well-known sort of saying where they come up and go, oh, I love classical music. It's so relaxing. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I, I think it, you, should, you should hear Sacre du Printemps or, or there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I think of all the repertoire I know of a thousand years of, of, of Western classical music, and I can think of about three pieces that I would actually qualify as, as relaxing. Maybe some sati, I'm not sure. Um, but everything else is, is so much more complex and so much more interesting than that. And so it's, it's a mission of mine, both as a photographer and as a musician and bridging the world between the two to show people that, hey, this isn't, this isn't relaxing. This is a thrilling, tragic, exciting, um, happy, sad, every possible emotion you couldn't ever imagine. And hopefully some that you've never experienced before, something new. Um, and, and that's what we should be putting out there. Thank you very much. I think that's uh, that puts it all together. <laughs> uh, the music <laughs> and the photography and also the craftsmanship. Thank you very much, Charles, for sharing. Uh, my absolute pleasure. Thank you for, for having me on. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate this because listening is one of the top leadership skills and I feel honored about this. It is my mission to find, create and share inspirations for meaningful collaboration based on music analogies. If you want to support this, please subscribe to the podcast, give us a rating or write a review on iTunes or Spotify. And more inspirations can be found on musicthinking.com. We have a blog and you can download the Music Thinking Framework. And finally, I would love to hear your feedback. And if you need help with a business challenge, please reach out to me via email podcast at musicthinking.com. <laughs>